talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Justin Trudeau has lifted the vaccine mandate for truckers. Thank goodness. Considering the war in Ukraine, I know we were all terrified of another convoy. Here's Scott Thompson. I don't know what terrifies me more, a convoy or, or having Harry Styles over the show. What about you, Will? What terrifies you more? A convoy or Harry Styles in the opener? He's speechless. <laughs> what doesn't terrify me, I guess. Uh, you know, my wife and daughter love the Harry Styles. It was Dave Woodard that suggested we play this today. And I thought my first reaction was, no, we can't do that. Uh, but then again, you know, it's like somehow it fits. So there you go. Uh, good afternoon. It is 3.09. It's Hamilton today. Thanks, Will. Didn't mean to put you on the spot there. Uh, Will Weber on the board and everywhere, it, it, it seems. Uh, Diana Weeks, Dave Woodard in the newsroom. Jump into the fun. Let me get that for you. Uh, poll question of the day waiting for you on our Twitter page. Uh, which team will win the Game 7 uh, OHL championship coming up tonight? Of course. What do you mean? Bulldogs uh, coming in at 89.7%. What's with you, 10.5%? Three, come on, out of town. Uh, perhaps there are people, uh, you know, tagging on from Windsor. Who knows? They're close uh, to the border. What can you say? That's exactly it. I mean, my goodness, they, you know, what the heck? Um, so we'll uh, we'll cheer for them. We're going to talk to Reed Duthie coming up a little later on in the show and get his take on all of this. Uh, a, a lot surprised that we are where we are right now, simply just with the past uh, record of the team. But oh man. Uh, anyway, uh, but you know, we are where we are and it's game seven. And those are like the two most exciting words in, uh, in sports. So, and it's happening right here in the dog pound. So, uh, jump on board. We would love to, uh, see you in the pound tonight. Uh, game time is seven o'clock. Have I said it's Hamilton today? Have I said it's Scott Thompson? Have I said all of those things? Uh, we would love to hear from you. Jump into the show. We got a good one for you. I hope you hang around for it. Uh, I don't know if you saw any, anything on this, especially as we're traveling more. Maybe it's good. That we're not getting on planes, but there was a, a, a airplane near an airplane, a jet airliner near miss on the ground uh, at Pearson. We're going to talk to our friend Keith Mackey about that and uh, try to figure out exactly what happened. And luckily, you know, uh, nobody was uh, in any immediate danger, but safety systems that were in place didn't seem to catch this, uh, and the human eye did. So uh, the things in place to catch uh, what the human eye misses. Uh, it didn't work, so we're going to talk about that coming up a little later on. Uh, art photography, there's an, uh, just a, a breathtaking exhibit that's going to uh, be at Hamilton City Hall. It is at Hamilton City Hall showing uh, the Ukraine war and front lines and hometowns. And my goodness, there was uh, uh, just an incredible shot of kids going back to their high school, which, of course, was uh, blown apart and staring on various, standing on various floors uh, of the school. And, of course, the wall is gone, and you can see them all on the various floors. And that was their high school graduation picture. So uh, some phenomenal images. We'll talk to you more about that coming up uh, in a, a little bit. Also, we're getting in uh, uh, information about the economic impact of Grey Cup and uh, the Heritage Classic. And it's something like $20 bucks. so... You, 
you, you can't argue with that, can you? Uh, it, it is, you know, you're asking the question, is it worth hosting all of these things? Uh, it, most of the time it is. Uh, there are a few exceptions, but uh, for the most part, it is an, uh, an economic advantage to the city, not, not to mention job creator. Other news that's happening out and about, Minister uh, Blair has said the police didn't ask for the Emergencies Act, although he still believes it needed to be used. Uh, Governor General, remember we were talking in the past about Governor Generals that seem to rack up unbelievable bills? Uh, a, a, a catering bill aboard a flight, almost 100 k for the catering bill. That doesn't even cover the fuel. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on as well. Home sales dipping a bit this month. I think we knew that. And here's, uh, and this might be a, uh, a, a sign of things to come, but the U.S. has announced today, uh, because of their struggle with inflation, they've increased their bank interest rates 0.75%. We got a half point jump last time. This is a three quarter point jump. So we're going to chat and see how that affects us up here and what it means, uh, going forward. And Toronto police re- releasing some stats that many people already knew about race enforcement and what is going on and what they're going to do or going to try to do uh, to rectify the situation. Uh, coming up in the second hour of the show, you know, we've been hearing this, that um, the, pre- the uh, Prime Minister of Ukraine uh, still needs more heavier weapons to defend against Russia. And lots of stuff have been prom- uh, promised, but not much of it has arrived yet. And they need that to, uh, you know, withstand what is going on in this just grind out, grind out old style military conflict that has many of us just shaking our heads. We're going to talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. Also an interesting column uh, that was from uh, John Ibbotson in, in talking about um, uh, Pierre Polyev and his race for the conservative leadership and considering where we are and where the provinces have sort of gone uh, in regard to leadership and, and extremism that, that Polyev represents on the right. Certainly lots of it on the left too. Uh, um, many are asking him to pivot to the center, but is that really what will work here? And there's some interesting comparisons. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. As I mentioned, Reed Duffy is going to be joining us. Bulldogs facing the Spitfires in Game 7 tonight. Uh, and also uh, some interesting, uh, interesting columns coming out in regard to uh, the Prime Minister and his uh, inability to get a hold of what is going on in Canada and uh, his slow reaction time to some of the crisis that we are all uh, facing. So we'll chat about that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, the economic reputation of Canada, was it dam- damaged by the truckers' protests? We'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on as well. So again, always looking for your input for the show. Feel free to send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. As I mentioned, and the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Start 9900 on your cell. Not a bad day out there, but uh, apparently the heat is coming. So uh, you know that not only from the uh, weather forecast, but when my wife sends a note and asks, is the air conditioner turned on? Uh, you know that there is uh, warmth coming in the air, and uh, it certainly is. More on that coming up on another edition of Hamilton Today. We heard a little bit about this, and uh, I was actually watching a report on it uh, last night, and uh, you have to think how many planes take off and land uh, not only in the greater Toronto-Hamilton area, but all over uh, the continent over the course of a day, an hour, uh, whatever. Uh, Well, two Air Canada planes missed colliding at Toronto Airport, uh, and 
uh, and basically what was happening was, uh, as you see, they're all lined up and they go one, two after, or they go one and then it takes off and the other one heads off and so on. Uh, one was heading down the runway, uh, then reported a bird strike. So they hit a bird, were concerned about that, so wanted to abort the landing and, and just, and, and not take off. Uh, unfortunately, the plane that was coming behind them uh, didn't hear that, nor did air traffic control, and they started heading down the runway with the other plane still there. Visual contact uh, obviously made, and um, you know, and the second plane uh, obviously aborted as well. The the takeoff at that point. So to explain this in greater detail, with a lot more expertise, Keith Mackey is with us, Mackey International. He is a uh, airline expert, and with us now, Keith. Thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, Scott, and you too. I hope you are. So far, so good. So your thoughts on what happened? Give us that description from your point of view of, of what actually took place here. Okay, first, this was not a recent event. It took place in March of yeah. 2020. Mm-hmm. And the report was just released yesterday. And you described it quite well. If I were investigating it, there would be a number of questions that I would still want answers before I came to any conclusions. Apparently, the Embraer 190 aborted the takeoff, as you said, because of the bird strike and made a report to the tower, which was not heard by anyone because the tower apparently at that same instant was clearing the uh, the second flight, the 777, into position. The 777 then received a takeoff clearance while the Embraer was still on the runway. Now, if I'm in the cockpit of an airplane, I certainly look down the runway, and if there's another airplane on the runway, I'm not taking off (laughs) until he's either in the air or he's cleared the runway. So I'm not sure how this happened. It should have been obvious to the 777 pilot that the runway was not clear. Now, the controller apparently uh, was his attention was directed to the other side of the airport where there were two other aircraft landing on another runway. He looked at his screen, and the Embraer has an old-fashioned transponder in it. And when it's accelerating down the runway, at the point that it reaches 50 knots, it uh, indicates that it's actually airborne when it isn't. Right. So the controller hmm. apparently thought the Embraer was airborne, when he cleared the 777 for takeoff. And uh, later on, when he looked down, he saw that it really wasn't airborne at all. It was still on the runway. And uh, the 777 apparently got up to, uh, the report says, 124 knots, which is getting close to takeoff speed, and then realized the other airplane was on the air on the runway and aborted. So it's unclear to me how this could really have taken place. There's a lot of blame to go around here if it's as it appears. Uh, how do you get that 777 slowed down in time? Was that ever an issue? Well, they say that they never got closer than 5,000 feet to one another, and I kind of doubt that. Uh, the 777 was just going over to Halifax, so he probably wasn't real heavy, didn't have a lot of fuel on board or anything. But uh, to stop quickly, of course, you... Uh, put the engines in reverse you get on the brakes as hard as you can and you uh deploy the uh the flight and the ground spoilers and you can stop quite quickly 
But uh, why they uh, took off while there was still an airplane on the runway is is unexplained in my mind. So I just have this vision, Keith, of two airplanes down at the end of the runway or midway down the runway stopped. What happens then? I'll just taxi back and try again, see if you can do better the next time. <laughs> Circle around and get back in line, basically. Well, actually, uh, legally, you need a new clearance and everything else once you've uh, aborted the takeoff. You can't just take off again. You need new paperwork, and uh, the the original release is canceled. But uh, it's really unclear how this could have happened, and maybe this is why it took uh, two and a half years to release the report. Uh, what about bird strikes like this? And uh, obviously, uh, if it's happening on the ground, don't go up. Uh, talk a bit more about that. How often does this happen? Well, uh, bird strikes are not that uncommon. Now, I wasn't there in seat, so I don't know what the situation was. But uh, if I were in a heavy airplane and I had a bird strike, it would have to be a, a pretty serious event to cause me to abort the takeoff. Because once mm. you do that, you're uh, inducing a whole lot of other risks into the situation. And particularly if the bird hit the windshield or some other part of the airplane, which would have made it obvious if it had hit an engine, they wouldn't have realized that it was a bird strike or what it was. There might have been a power interruption, but there's no indication of that. So I would assume the bird struck somewhere where it was obvious to the pilots what had happened, that it was a bird strike. And for whatever reason, they elected to abort the takeoff. Uh, what happens if a bird goes through or a, uh, a large plane jet hits a, a bird like that? Does it go in one side and out the other, or is it d- really damaging? Well, uh, we know about the uh, uh, the airplane that ditched in the Hudson River a number of years yeah. ago. It yeah. hit birds, but they didn't hit one bird. They hit a whole flock of birds. And right. there were sufficient birds in there that it damaged the engine sufficiently that they weren't able to produce sufficient power to maintain flight, hence the ditching in the river. But w- there's no indication in this report that there was severe damage to the, the Embraer 190. So we really don't have that information. I'm sure the uh, Transport uh, Safety Board has it, but we don't. All right, Keith Mackey with us, Mackey International, talking about uh, past incident at Toronto's Pearson Airport. Two planes coming just a little too close to each other for uh, comfort. Keith, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, we've talked at length in this show and certainly know what has uh, been going on in Ukraine, the Russian invasion. I believe it's uh, we're today like 117, 118 now uh, that uh, that Russia showed up and, and started uh uh, what it's doing to Ukraine. And I mean, we've all seen the horrific uh, images coming out of there and, and allies trying to help out as best they could, uh, best they can, and just heroic, uh, heroic efforts by uh, the people of Ukraine to, to, to stand up to this force. And of course, Hamilton involved in, in many ways locally, whether it's welcoming refugees or local organizations doing what they can uh, to raise funds or, or even just educate people on what is going on in that part of the world. And Hamiltonians have an opportunity to see what life is like through uh, a photo exhibit, uh, what life is like in Ukraine through a photo exhibit that is now on at City Hall. And to talk more about all of this, Fred Eisenberger is with us, mayor for the city of Hamilton, and here now. Fred, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. 
Uh, yeah, Scott, very well. Haven't chatted in a while, but uh, thank you for having me on. Let's talk about this uh, photo exhibit. I mean, Hamilton, uh, as always, uh, opens its arms and welcomes people whenever whenever they can, and, and we've done a lot for, for those uh, associated with the Ukraine community. But talk about this photo exhibit that's going on at City Hall right now. Yeah, we, uh, we were able to, uh, Scott, kick this off yesterday, and thanks to uh, Robert Zeidler, who is the managing partner at the Cotton Center, uh, who... Uh, actually uh, you know invited us to uh, to take this uh, exhibit into the forecourt of city hall it was uh, previously in toronto and folks can come uh, up until uh, the june june the 28th i believe mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. to come and view these uh, collections of pictures and you know uh, they're very difficult to watch and you're we're actually bearing witness to uh, you know really really tragic events happening in uh, in ukraine uh you know we we catch it on television uh we uh, now see it in black and white images uh, <clears throat> in the forecourt here at City Hamilton, uh, but it's really uh, you know an opportunity for us to not turn our minds away from the tragedy that's happening there and the ability for us to be helpful. And so um, we're delighted that uh, not only the Ukrainian community but the Latvian community, the Lithuanian community, the Estonian community, Polish community representatives were all here yesterday to support, and uh, and we've all committed to uh, doing everything we can. To, uh, to welcome uh, Ukrainians fleeing this conflict uh, to, to Hamilton and get them established uh, to the best degree possible. So there's a lot of work to do. Uh, we previously had uh, Scott delivered uh, $50,000 to the Terrace Bulba Ukraine uh, organization that was doing uh, airlifts to, uh, to Ukraine for medical supplies, uh, you know, supplies that uh, are gonna help Ukrainians get through this crisis and we've, you know, transferred $50,000 to them for about four airlifts to help out in that regard. And then we anticipate that I've already had uh, some Ukrainian families come and uh, come and stay in Hamilton. They're, they've so far been put up by uh, some volunteers and some friends and family, but uh, sooner or later, there are going to be others that are coming here that we'll, we'll need to find a way of accommodating. I know we've uh, the city of Hamilton has uh, has held a uh, a Ukrainian welcome and information event, and I understand another one is uh, set to take place. What sort of what goes on? What what sort of information is given out? What what are the benefits of these? Yeah, it's really about bringing all of the uh, folks out there that are generally you usually uh, you know involved with immigration and refugees. Uh, into one space so that we uh, don't trip over one another in terms of how we coordinate this. So we've, we've done that level of coordination here at the city. The city kind of led that process. And, uh, you know, the uh, the Good Shepherd uh, centers, the uh, the, the immigration uh, workshops, the uh, all, all the, the Hamilton Integration Partnership uh, Council, all, all focused on getting people and welcoming people to Hamilton. Uh, have all come together and say, how are we going to do this effectively uh, uh, as a group? Uh, and we also actually have done the uh, the mayor's uh, gathering with uh, the greater Toronto-Hamilton area mayors getting together and having a coordinated approach through that process as well so that we can go to the federal government and say, here's what we're going to need to be able to make this uh, happen in our communities so that we can uh, welcome all the, uh, some 240,000 folks have been uh, have, have, have applied for a uh, uh, authorization to come to Canada, and about 112 have already been approved. So they're they're coming, and we want to make sure that we uh, we welcome them in a coordinated way, so that we can provide housing services, English as second language services, 
and temporary housing as they come here to find more established housing going forward. So there's a real big effort here, and we want to make sure that it's a coordinated effort between all the agencies that do this work. This is amazing to see, Fred, uh, not only what the city is doing, whether it's it's holding exhibits like this to educate people on what's going on, whether it's helping refugees that come in or supporting organizations. We were talking about one, you know, at the Westdale not too long ago uh, in regard to to uh, showing exhibits there as yep. well. It, it really is something to see. But Hamilton has an awful long history of this dating back to the World Wars. Totally. And, uh, you know, I, even after the World Wars, I mean, I'm a, I'm a product of the immigration yeah. after after the uh, the World War of 1945, when, uh, you know, places like Holland were devastated and England and Germany and France. And they were actually offering incentives for people to uh, to move out of the country because they couldn't uh, afford to keep them there. And so, uh, you know, immigration has been a, uh, you know, the foundation of, of the city of Hamilton, quite frankly. And if you look at the makeup of our city, enormously diverse uh, with you know Italians and Hungarians and uh, the Irish I mean the whole diversity of, uh, of ethnic uh, and national backgrounds uh, are part of our uh, welcoming uh, Hamilton Canadian mosaic and uh, so the tradition of welcoming people the most recent being uh, the Syrian intake that uh, that happened a few years ago as a, as a result of another crisis in that country uh, previous to that, it was uh, Vietnam and, uh, and uh, uh, Somalia. I recall there was a wave mm. at, at a given point in time. And on each and every occasion, I think uh, Hamiltonians have opened their arms and said, we, uh, we want to make sure that we uh, welcome these people, give them a proper place in our community, give them opportunity uh, for them and their families, and uh, allow them to become uh, you know, Canadians. And at the same time, bring all of that wonderful ethnic culture with them and share it with the rest of us. And so that's a great Hamilton Canadian tra- tradition, in fact, and uh, certainly that tradition continues. Uh, without, I uh, can't let you go without uh, asking you your thoughts on a report out about the Heritage Classic, the Grey Cup, $20 million into the city. Any surprise there? No, uh, you know, these uh, we, we, we make these uh, modest investments in these events to get, uh, you know, economic uplift. And this one happened to happen at a, at a very opportune time. Mm. where, you know, we're just coming out of COVID and businesses are looking for, you know, new business and new opportunity at the hospitality and entertainment sector, uh, obviously uh, crying for business. And uh, this was an opportunity to send some business their way. So there's always a, uh, an economic spinoff. And uh, this one had a particularly good one. And we anticipate the, uh, the Great Cup uh, coming up in 2023. We'll have uh, mm. something very, very similar. That's why we do these things. Uh, they uh, they are great sporting events. They are great entertainment, but they're also great economic uplift for businesses in our community. And oh yeah, one more thing uh, that running yeah. for mayor. Uh, any <laughs> any more on that? Just thought I'd throw that in there. Uh, is that happening? Is that happening? I heard uh, something about it. There's yeah, some flurry. Yeah, uh, uh, any more uh, on that from you, uh, uh, Mayor Fred? Uh, I can tell you this, uh, Scott, that uh, I, I'm going to make an announcement as to what I'm going to do on Monday. On Monday, an announcement Monday. from the mayor. All right, yeah. sounds great. Thank you so much for that. Mayor Fred Eisenberger, mayor right. for the city of Hamilton, talking about a great exhibit at City Hall, uh, which shows you exactly what the people of Ukraine are going through, and uh, obviously Hamilton at the forefront of helping uh, those that need it. Mayor Fred, as always, thank you mo- uh, so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Talk to you soon. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On
Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You know, it has, and we're, as we're coming out of uh, the global pandemic, so I shouldn't use that choice of words, coming out of it, because we're still kind of living with it. Uh, uh, but as they let us out, as they opened the barn doors for us to jump naked through the daisies, uh, we remember that there is like a, a couple of really huge sporting events coming. Uh, the the uh, FIFA uh, qualifier, uh, World Cup qualifier, uh, the Grey Cup, and the NHL Heritage Classic, which was just, you know, a great series of events to come uh, to happen as we were exiting or uh, getting to the next stage of a global pandemic. And now uh, studies are coming in that saying that uh, the two events, whether the Heritage Classic or the Grey Cup, uh, pumping about $20 million into Hamilton's economy. And many ask, why do we run these things? Why do we have these things? Why do we pay money? taxpayers money in some cases to to operate these events and right there is uh the reason why and that's just the monetary value let's bring in ryan McHugh, manager of tourism and events city of hamilton and with us now ryan thank you for the time i hope you're well good afternoon thank you so much for having me scott so, Ryan, it's always a, a bone of contention with taxpayers when people or cities want to uh, build things or, uh, or or put on events like this that they may not see uh, the advantage of. Are you surprised you got this kind of return from these two major events? Uh, no, no, really not. Uh, you know, these are two marquee events, and I think it's just a testament to Hamilton and Tim Hortons Field that we were well positioned to get these two events and the others, which you mentioned, uh, in such succession right after COVID uh, when the industry needed it most. And really, you know, it's an investment in an outcome instead of, a, you know, an expenditure. Uh, you know, the Grey Cup had over 26,000 people. It was the biggest, um, most attended event in Tim Hortons uh, field history. The Heritage Classic was slightly behind it. So very impactful for the local economy. And of course, uh, and I thought this was brilliant by the CFL to to put the two Grey Cups uh, into Hamilton, considering just the way things uh, have worked out. And it was interesting. I was listening to the report, and they were saying, or reading the report, and they were saying that uh, y- y- the difference between having a home team there and uh, visiting teams there, uh, and how that changes the complexion. Uh, how does that change things when it's a Hamilton home team or a home team in, as opposed to two visiting teams? And- and, and tourism and such. Yeah, so as much as, uh, as a Hamiltonian and tourism Hamilton, we'd love to have the Ticats in, and, you know, it was almost perfect, almost pulled out the overtime wind. Uh, yeah. When you do have two out-of-town teams, you get more fan bases flying yeah. into the city, staying in hotels. So from a pure economic impact standpoint, uh, having two out-of-town teams uh, does provide more bang for your buck, but certainly I don't think anyone in Hamilton would complain about no. the Ticats in that game. What, what an incredible day. And we're and we must uh, also say, obviously, we're looking at this strictly from a monetary, not a fan perspective. Uh, so, right. when you can have marquee events like you've just said, the three we just said, the three that just happened. What does this do as far as uh, not only publicity for the for the city of Hamilton, because you know TV and, and viewers and people watching, not only the people that are here, but also in attracting other events of this caliber. Uh, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, these, these two events uh, coming out of COVID, um, you know, as I think your listeners are well aware, the tourism uh, sector, uh, restaurants, uh, hotels, attractions, um, even our French sports franchises, they were really hurting. They were uh, in one of the sectors most impacted by the mm-hmm. negative impacts of COVID. So, um, you know, providing, you know, these events at that time was very, very meaningful uh, to all local 
tourism stakeholders and provided a ton of uplift. And, you know, really it does uh, build that prestige. Uh, for Hamilton, we didn't host a Grey Cup for 26 years, and now we're hosting two in three years. Uh, you know, on the backs of that, we get a Heritage Classic, the FIFA World Cup qualifier. Uh, and even at our arena, First Ontario Centre on July 1st, we have the FIBA, the Canadian men's national team, with a few NBA players will be playing the Dominican Republic. So we're really gaining a reputation as a great uh, sports town, uh, not just for our great sports franchise and, of course, Go Bulldogs, but also for uh, international events and national events such as these. I remember, Ryan, when hotels were an issue as far as attracting conventions or events like this. Is that an issue still? Well, uh, you know, the number of hotels in Hamilton has increased, hotel rooms, I should say, increased by about 30% in the last four or five years. We're seeing major investments in new hotel capacity, and that used to be an issue. Uh, you know, you could bring a big event to, uh, you know, Tim Hortons Field or Iberwind before that, but there was nowhere for people to stay. And it's really important that if the game's in Hamilton, uh, guests are staying in Hamilton as opposed to neighboring municipalities to really make sure those dollars are spent here uh, you know, at our shops, at our restaurants, at our airport, at our hotels. So that uh, you know, is really an enabling piece, which we're going to see greater growth in the future, which just positions us to get more and more events such as these in the future. What's coming up? Anything you can tell us about the future? Yeah, so uh, you know, coming up, uh, building on this great run we've had, uh, as I was mentioned, we have the FIBA basketball game on Canada Day at the First Ontario Centre. And then in 2023, of course, we have a second Grey Cup, uh, which mm-hmm. will be even bigger and better than the one we had in 2021, which was impacted by COVID. Um, we also have the Canadian Country Music Awards coming next September uh, to the First Ontario Centre. Um, going fast forward to 2024, we have the RBC Canadian Open coming back and many, many exciting things in the pipeline, which I hope to get to announce uh, in the coming months. But um, really building on that success, getting a lot of major events, uh, whether sports or arts and culture, and bringing them right here to Hamilton. Ryan McHugh with us, Manager of Tourism and Events, uh, and, and of course showing us that uh, there's lots of future for the City of Hamilton going forward, especially with what we've just experienced in 20 million coming in just from the Grey Cup and the NHL Heritage Classic. Ryan, thanks so much for the time. You're making us all look good. Thanks so much and be well. Thank you so much, and go Bulldogs. We love having Christian Leprac on, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the Macdonald-Laurie Institute, uh, not only because he is a brainiac and he's got his hands in everything, but by the time we get to him, the stories that we were going to talk to him has usually changed a couple of times um, because he, he's got an opinion on everything. So, Christian, thank you so much for having the time and spending some time with us. We greatly appreciate it, and I hope you're doing well. Well, or that I have an opinion, at least on security matters in this country and the rather homeopathic approach that we seem to take on them and that I have an interest in keeping this country safe and secure. So, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful day. Which is why we love having you here. So, uh, and we've been following this story quite a bit over the last several months, years, uh, years, I guess. And, uh, we've got some great reporters, uh, out west that are doing, uh, work with Global News on this very story. Uh, the money laundering public inquiry report, uh, released today. Uh, I, I would have never thought of, of bringing you in as a guest to talk about this, not knowing you had so much involvement in it. But obviously you're a part of this final Cullen Commission report. What is your involvement with this? What can you tell us? 
Yeah, so financial crime has been something that I've been testifying before our parliamentary committee is about for about a decade. And it seems to get relatively little traction because it's relatively uh, obscure to most people. Most people think this is just about lost tax revenue. And the Cullen report makes it clear that financial crime has broad ramifications for, uh, for community safety. But it also lays out uh, the extent to which uh, money laundering is prolific um, in this country and how our very weak uh, financial protections um, that basically our financial system works really well for organized criminals and uh, the ultra rich and that there's um, a lot of the things that we put forward as sort of world class like our financial intelligence agency FinTrack is really uh, highly ineffective at, uh, at what they do and uh, so I'm delighted that for instance the Cullen Commission um, largely adopted the submission we made on how you actually stand up uh, an effective financial investigations uh, and intelligence unit, how you need to structure that, that it adopted sort of recommendations on cash payments for luxury goods, which is an extensive problem also in Ontario. So people buying very expensive cars in cash with no ability to trace the cash or no ability to trace the good, a whole pile of regulations that are also highly applicable for Ontario in terms of much more stringent rules for accountants, for lawyers, for real estate agents, for the money that uh, they hold and where they effectively ate and uh, where, where some of them effectively ate and abet vast amounts of dirty money moving not only through the BC um, a property market, but we have the same, uh, exactly the same problem um, in Ontario. And some of the legal ramifications like unexplained wealth orders like the UK has, um, where government needs to be able to ask questions. You know, if you're living in a multi-million dollar home, you declare no income um, and you're happy to avail yourself of Canadian social services, then uh, uh, the government should have uh, the opportunity to uh, issue an order to ask some questions about where that money came from. If you don't have a good explanation, then the government should seize that property. Uh, we've talked to Sam Cooper from Global News, who's done extensive reporting on this out west. And and I remember uh, after talking to him a series of times, he, he very much pointed out this is not just a B.C. problem, that this is happening uh, all across the country and especially in Ontario. But as you said, it just doesn't seem uh, to grab the headlines, more so now with the Russian situation and oligarchs and such. Um, uh, but again, uh, you know, he was doing extensive work into the Chinese Communist Party's um, uh, influence in all of this and how it has uh, increased the prices of housing, not only in BC, but across the country. Yeah, so those are all really important points, right? So that our adversaries are leveraging um, the extremely weak regulations and enforcement and intelligence capabilities that we have in this country effectively to undermine our democracy. Um, we saw some of this with the Ottawa occupation where extensive resourcing came from outside of the country and the government simply didn't have the financial instruments uh, that it needed to stop those financial flows, even though intelligence knew exactly uh, where the money was coming from and where the money was uh, where the money was going if it had passed more effective legislation like just about every continental European country has the changes that Australia has recently made, the changes that the UK has made. Uh, we wouldn't have needed the Emergencies Act to uh, make some relatively uh, um, uh, small but important uh, ways to curtail some of these financial transactions. Um, and the broader ramifications, the listeners might remember that this ultimately came out of Peter German's report, uh, first into casinos um, in British Columbia and then subsequently mm -hmm. into the real estate sector um, in British Columbia. And of course, both of those sectors are 
also highly vulnerable uh, in Ontario, but politicians seem to be happy to turn a blind eye because, of course, the real estate transactions drive real estate prices, which in turn then drives property uh, um, uh, property tax, which means more revenue for all levels of government. And so nobody seems to be particularly interested where ultimately the money is coming from. And the fact that we are keeping that this money is uh, has been pilfered for, uh, from, from coffers of uh, state coffers from around the world, that this money comes from organized crime, that this money um, uh, comes from people who are just gross human rights abusers. And as we now see with the Russian, Russian sanctions, that um, uh, there are billions of dollars, uh, even just in dirty Russian money, um, that the initial sanctions here against Russian, the known Russian entities uh, have already been able to freeze, that this is ultimately um, a matter of political will, that this can be done. It's rather that politicians have been turning a blind eye and that I hope the electorate uh, starts to take this seriously, because I think um, if there's a perception on the electorate, as I think there very much is, uh, that there's sort of two sets of rules, one for criminals and the ultra-rich and one for everyone else, this will undermine our democratic institutions and, of course, our, uh, uh, their ability to, uh, um, to finance themselves to deliver for Canadians. Uh, nothing new here, uh, Christian. We've talked about this for a while. It appears like nobody in government cares. Is that changing? Um, <laughs> is it because everybody's making money or because they're making money? Yeah, I think the key is uh, a shift in understanding of money laundering. Um, the problem with the current sort of approach to money laundering as countries, there needs to be a precursor crime. So the assumption is there needs to be a crime that that money came from. And if there's no crime, then there's no dirty money. But of course, the point that the Cowan mm. Commission makes in its many recommendations is precisely that, indeed, the money itself can be a crime just by virtue of how it was obtained, by virtue of how, how it got here, by virtue of how it's being moved around. And so un this, un this very simple shift in mentality uh, is key when we live in a global society and either the crimes happened offshore where we're never going to be able to investigate them or even identify where the crime took place, or in many cases, no crime took place because the money was simply stolen um, or comes from trade-based money laundering or other types of uh, uh, criminal activity uh, that in and of themselves don't have a precursor crime per se. The Cullen Commission out uh, today in regard to money laundering and Christian Leprec, uh in it and his opinion of all of this and where we are as a government uh, to try to combat it. Uh, Christian Leprec, Professor, Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University, fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Great conversation. Thank you, Scott. Have a great afternoon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. John Ibbotson is with us, contributor to the Globe and Mail, specializing in Canadian politics and author of, along with Daryl Bricker, Empty Planet, The Big Shift and The Landing and a fascinating headline. And uh, I found this article fascinating. And, and the headline is, Pierre Polyev ignores calls to pivot towards the center. He poses a real threat to the liberals. Uh, writes John. So uh, I find this fascinating because my questions to political pundits have been in the last week or so. Uh, can the feds learn anything from the Ontario election, uh, the Liberals and the Conservatives, in Doug Ford uh, obviously having success, and the NDP and the Liberals not so much? But it's not about divisiveness. Is it about empathy? Uh, let's bring John Ibbotson in, contributor to the Globe and Mail. He's with us now. John, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am indeed. Thanks. 
I found this a fascinating take because I've talked to so many that have said, um, you know, after what we've seen what happened with, in Ontario with Doug Ford, the bull in the China shop has now become the moderate in the center. Um, some may say even the most left-leaning uh, premier since the days of Bill Davis. And we see, seem to see the opposite happening in, in federal politics, uh, specifically with Pierre Polyev, who many have said has touched on, you know, the populist, uh, is playing with a populist switch. But your take is very different, and it's one of empathy. Explain that. Uh, uh, empathy, or uh, even a better word, because we're talking about two different politicians, uh, Doug Ford and Pierre Polyev, uh, might be authenticity. Hmm. Um, I've written in the past that there many of the policies that Mr. Uh, Polyev have put forward, uh, I think, are, are wrong and even, uh, some, in some cases, scary. Um, firing the Bank of Canada, his, his sense of identification mm-hmm. with the protests here in Ottawa, um, his Bitcoin obsession. Um, but one thing that Pierre Polyev has, that Doug Ford has, is when he says who and what he is, people believe him. And uh, when uh, and that's something that the Conservative Party has struggled with. You remember with Andrew Scheer, mm-hmm. Aaron O'Toole, there was pivoting to the center after running to the right. There was a sense among the voters that they weren't sure who exactly these leaders were. That, of course, brings out hidden agenda accusations from the Liberals. But what Mr. Polyev has going for him uh, is the same thing that Doug Ford has going for him, is, is that, that people believe that he means what he says. Um, and that this is the guy you're looking at is the real guy. And at a time when we are at you know record levels of inflation, rising interest rates, increasing economic insecurity, um, Mr. Polyev's message that it's the fault of the gatekeepers in Ottawa and he'll purge them um, is resonating. And when he says it, you believe that he believes it. And, and that is something that is uh, that has been missing in, in politics within the Conservative Party for quite a long time. So is he dividing or uniting? Politics is by nature divisive. It's not mm-hmm. the purpose of political parties to bring everyone together in perfect harmony. That's why we have opposing political parties. I've argued in the past that Justin Trudeau has been divisive in uh, the way he stigmatizes opponents, uh, in the way he exploits American issues such as abortion rights and gun rights uh, in Canada in order to paint his opposition as you know, cruel and American and Trumpist. Um, so, you know, the liberal policies are in their own way divisive, but that's all right. That's what political systems are about. I don't think we are reaching anything remotely close to the level of polarization the United States has. That is a society that is that is deeply, deeply divided on core fundamental issues. But, you know, although we talk a lot about uh, the, the populism uh, uh, of Pierre Polyev, what about his policies are actually far right wing policies? When he was asked uh, during the debate about the over 400,000 people that the Liberals have been bringing in as immigrants every year, um, he supported the policy. He says, we need them uh, to, to fill in labor shortages. And in fact, I'm going to make it easier for them to get jobs uh, once they're here. So you take Doug Ford, you take Pierre Polyev, and some people say they're, they're extreme right wing, and some people say that they're populist. But when you look at their policies, they're, they're not that crazy. And anyway... What kind of a Trumpist, populist, far far right-wing politician earns the support of immigrant voters in the 905, as Doug Ford overwhelmingly did? Hmm. 
Um, for me, and, and this is my own personal opinion, it was around the time of the Freedom Convoy just before Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, and, and that really took off. And and we had 90% of the population vaccinated, and he was just hammering and hammering against the 10% that weren't, whether you know half of them uh, have nothing to do with vaccines and the other half can't get vaccinated. Rather than celebrating the fact that we had hit 90%, we were vilifying the 1 in 10 out of the in the room that that, that weren't vaccinated and and to me it, it made me look back and i've been on the planet 60 years and and from my standpoint he seems to be the most divisive prime minister we've had the, the, it's just it's it's my way or your way and there's no middle ground um look is that I inaccurate john well, I think it, it, look, that, the same things were said about Stephen Harper when he was prime minister. I wrote a biography of Stephen Harper. Yeah. And one of the things that um, irked me about his critics was that there were people who said Stephen Harper was, was, was not even democratic, that Canada was ceasing to be a, a, a democracy under Stephen Harper, that he was a dictatorial and arrogant and it was my way or the highway and all of those things. He wasn't. He was a fairly principled conservative leader who also uh, made accommodations depending on the circumstances. And uh, Justin Trudeau is not uh, that different. Prime ministers are supposed to govern. They are politicians, so they're going to paint the other guys in an unflattering light. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And I don't think it it does us any good to to demonize our political leaders, whether it's Justin Trudeau for the Liberals or Stephen Harper for the Conservatives. Who um, who has the greatest ability to unite within the leaders uh, that are running for the leadership of the Conservative Party? You'll say you'll see many centrists or those on the left that will go between the Liberals and the Conservatives say that it's Jean Charest. Uh, again, Polyev represents uh, a, a different style of divisive polit- uh, politics. Um, again, you've characterized it as something different, which which I think has hit the nail on the head in your column. But but will people still view Polyev as um, you know, someone who's poking the bear, someone who's trying to, get, to trying to create a fight, or is it is it him speaking up for me? Look, the party, if if he wins the leadership, and I think he will, the party will unite around uh, Pierre Polyev because it will be Pierre Polyev's party. Just in the same way that when Justin Trudeau won the Liberal Party leadership, it was entirely his party. Remember all those fights between the Martin mm-hmm. camp and the Kretchen camp and the Ray camp and the Dion camp and the Imagine mm-hmm. camp? That all went away when Justin Trudeau became leader because there was just Justin Trudeau and nobody else. And if you didn't fully support him uh, in every way, shape or form, you were out of the party. You were out of uh, any position of influence. That would be true of Polyev. Uh, Jean Charest, if he were to win leadership, will try to unite the various factions of the conservative movement um, in a, in a broadly center, right, pragmatic, practical uh, conservative party. Um, And he will have trouble doing it because the party is, uh, is hard to unify. But one thing you can say for Pierre Polyev, he has sold hundreds of thousands of memberships, if his claims are to be believed. Um, and the party of the Conservative Party will be his party in the same way that the Conservative Party of Stephen Harper was Stephen Harper's party. He, he literally invented the party, he put it together, uh, and then led it for a decade. And there was no suggestion that there was anyone else other than Stephen Harper in charge. I think that would be the case with Mr. Polyev as well. Uh, only got a few seconds left. Uh, if Mr. Polyev does win the federal leadership of the Conservative Party, will he? How will his election campaign be different from what we're seeing now, or will it? Will it be more of the same? I think it will be uh, much closer to what we're seeing now than than a conservative campaign mm. in the past. A bit. It will be tough. It will be uh, pretty bare knuckle. 
Uh, the liberal, liberals will come back uh, with the pretty bare knuckle attacks as well. Uh, but this is a, a guy who doesn't play nice. This is a guy who who plays to win. Um, it will be, let us say, a spirited election campaign. <laughs> John Ivitson with us, contributor to the Globe and Mail, and a great column. Uh, if Pierre Polyev ignores calls to pivot towards the center, he poses a real threat to the liberals. Fascinating discussion, John. Thanks so much for your time. Be well. My pleasure. Bye-bye now. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Uh, Many of us didn't think we'd get this far, but we are where we are in uh, the two most exciting words in sport. Game 7. Hamilton Bulldogs, Windsor Spitfire tonight. Uh, 7 o'clock at the Dog Pound, and lots of you are responding. The lower bowl, we understand, is sold out. Upper bowl is open. If you want to get down there, get your butt in the seat and cheer on the dogs as they fight for the OHL championship. Let's bring in Reed Duthie, play-by-play announcer for your Hamilton Bulldogs. He is with us now. Reed, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, Scott, great to be with you. My voice is still uh, struggling a little bit, but I'm, I'm getting set here for Game 7. Oh, man. Uh, first of all, your thoughts on Game 6, man. Uh, you know, it, it seemed like uh, the Bulldogs just couldn't make anything happen and dominant play by Windsor. But what, what were your thoughts on what you saw with Game 6? You know, the Bulldogs controlled a lot of that game. And I, I think what happened was they got up to that 2-1 lead and things were still going well. And then there's a two-minute stretch at the end of the second period. So D'Amico ties the game on a really nice play out front from Pierre. And then an icing that wasn't actually an icing. Arbor Jack, I had gained the red line, and they blew it dead. Mm. And on the ensuing faceoff, the puck gets bumpered back to yeah. Michael Renwick, who absolutely unloaded a cannon. So a little bit advantageous. And then somehow Arbor Jack, I ends up in the penalty box to start the third period, which we're still trying to figure that one out. And suddenly it's 4-2 to two on a power play goal, and that really put the Bulldogs in a tough spot. I think it just kind of came unglued a little bit there. Uh, things seem to have been different, though. This, this reminds me of the Boston-Carolina series from earlier in the playoffs where mm. it was really a home team-based series. And it seems like when the home team has the matchup advantage, they've been really, really good. So let's see if that holds true tonight. All right, tough back and forth. So what, what, what is the challenge? What do the dogs need to do tonight to tame this team? Well, it starts off with containing the pair of Wyatt Johnston and, and Will Cooley. And I, I say containing not shutting down because those two guys are so good that they are incredibly difficult to shut down but if you can contain them and keep their chances to a minimum you put yourself in a good spot secondly execute in your moments the power play early on in game six was a struggle and i think that hurt them down the stretch if they can get that turned around maybe pot a couple on the power play tonight that would be a big step going forward and your best players need to be your best players. Mason McTavish, Logan Morris, and Avery Hayes, Nathan Steos, Arbor Jackye. Those are the five horses that are going to have to run ahead of the pack for the Hamilton Bulldogs. And then hope that somebody along that bench, a Meshock, a Diaco, a Duart, a White, somebody like that steps up from the backside and can maybe contribute a goal or two. The Bulldogs can put themselves in really good position if they can get all of that going. We've talked before about what it's like to play in Windsor uh, in their barn and such. Looks like you're going to get a full house. The uh, lower bowl is sold out. Uh, your thoughts on that and how that changes things as they come back? Scott, we're trending towards 12,000 fans right That's now. Amazing. That's amazing. Before a walk-up. So this is going to be a loud, loud building tonight. It's going to be maybe we're working on the numbers right now, but perhaps the record crowd 
for an OHL finals game, certainly on this side of the border. I know in 94-95 they did it at Joe Louis Arena. But it's going to be really loud. It could be very intimidating for the Windsor Spitfires. They're used to playing in a really loud building, but not when you've got two bowls sitting on top of you. This place is truly a coliseum in that old style that you're right over top of the ice here when you're in that upper bowl. They're going to face something they've never faced before, and I think that could be a real edge for the Hamilton Bulldogs. What's today like for the team? Uh, What are they doing today? You know, for them, it's it's, it's like any other day. It's it's a morning skate. It's, you know, get your your rest, your pregame meal, whatever you do to get yourself set up and get back to the rink, get your warm-up in and go. There's no change in what these guys are doing, and that's been what's so impressive for the Hamilton Bulldogs all season long. They take each shift, each period, each game, one at a time. So whether this is game one or game seven of the OHL finals, they're going to take it the exact same way they've done all season. It's worked out well for them here at First Ontario Centre playing that way. So let's see if they can continue that tonight. All right, 7 o'clock tonight in the Dog Pound. Uh, and yeah, you know what? Get your ticket soon. You're about the only one that won't be there because uh, already up to 12000 uh without even any walk-up. So it looks like it's going to be a great house uh, tonight at First Ontario Centre. 7 o'clock tonight, Bulldogs and Windsor. Reed, uh, good luck tonight. Have fun, and we'll chat again, I'm sure. Thanks so much, Scott. I'm just hoping the crowd will make it loud enough that when the Bulldogs score, I don't have to strain. The listening audience will be able to hear it. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, here we are with uh, where we are in this global pandemic. I, I don't want to say coming out of it because I'm not sure we ever will. We just learn to live with it. But life has changed a lot since this all started two and a half years ago. Uh, including, I believe, our politics, with changes to the remaining COVID restrictions coming uh, so soon after the Prime Minister was originally staunchly defending them. Some are seeing this as uh, more weakness that could rattle Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government, especially on top of the ongoing Emergencies Act inquiry, which has its own situation, and uh, the recent loss of the provincial Liberals just seemingly out of touch. Uh, Do do the Liberals, does the Prime Minister have much to worry about here? Is life uh, post pandemic for lack of a better phrase different than going in daniel perry with his consultant summa strategies he's with us now daniel thank you for the time i hope you're well thanks scott i'm doing good and i hope you're also doing well so far so good uh life different now um than it was prior to uh, the pandemic when it comes to politics uh, it was an inter- interesting article by john ibbotson in the globe and mail uh and he was talking about pierre polyev and we all know what that story is all about and <laughs> y- you know the populism and and this that and the other but he characterized it as another way and said it was less about divisiveness and and, and polarization and more about somebody who was authentic and somebody who had empathy and you know many are looking at the liberals and and questioning whether that quality is there what are your thoughts on that well i think that's interesting because that's how we spoke about justin trudeau in 2015 someone who had empathy someone that was able to connect well with people that actually related to people but after a couple of years of governing that kind of wore off and to be frank he has more wedges in his golf bag that he uses in politics than some of the candy open open uses so i think we have wait a sec are you talking are you talking about the author are you talking about the prime minister here oh sorry i'm talking about the prime minister there okay i'm sorry go ahead 
<laughs> um, we've say the pandemic has changed everything. It changed how we do day to day life. It changes how people even commute to work. Uh, no, people are less likely to be stuck in traffic these days, but they're more le- more likely to roll out of bed five minutes before the day starts. When it comes to our politics, the way people communicate the issues that matter to people, they've changed over the years, and I think the pandemic has really fueled that especially when it comes around economical issues because i think when most people look at their bank accounts now it's a little bit tighter than it was probably last year two years before that or even probably five years ago so like life has changed a lot critics of Polly Ebb will say and and you know i've said this too on the show man he goes where he doesn't need to go he's trying to be divisive uh and, and just strike nerves that that he knows will will get him uh lots of attention i was surprised to hear uh, uh, John Ibbotson go authentic and empathy. But once I read the column and listened to what he said, he does have a very valid point in the sense that at least this leader seems to be aware of how Canadians are feeling. And we're seeing this just in the difference in top five or six election uh, issues of the last provincial election compared to one, uh, you know, before the pandemic. And I'll use gas prices as a perfect example. Everybody's talking about this except the prime minister. Uh, how does he get back in touch here? Well, I think in the case of gas prices, he would rather see most Canadians not have to stop at a station. And that's why he's putting so much money into electric vehicles and public transit. So I think for him, I think he needs to get back to his roots, talk to Canadians from across Canada, talk to people that disagree with him. He tends not to like to do that. But if he's looking to win again and re-energize the Liberal Party, which I'm sure a lot of people within the party are hoping that he will do, he needs to kind of take a step back of being in Ottawa because the issues that impact people in Ottawa are very different than the issues that impact people outside of Ottawa. We often call it the Ottawa bubble. And I mm-hmm. think he's a little too trapped in that right now. Uh, also seeming more reactionary than proactive. It has to be a flaming tire fire before anything gets done. I mean, I remember this very vividly with the early stages of, of the Freedom Convoy. I mean, he blew them off. He wouldn't even talk to them. He wouldn't address them on the news. He called them misogynistic and, and racist and such. Um, as opposed to getting ahead of this and not letting it get to the point where, where it did. Does, do they have to be more proactive? Do they have to get stuff done? other than just a feeling. The, I, what their issue is right now, they have too many things on the go. They can't focus on one thing, and that's becoming the problem is because they're getting too siloed in their specific issues. So, for instance, they're looking at introducing new legislation around privacy, but at the same time, they still have a lot of promises to implement from the election and even the election before that. So the government's really running out of a runway, and that's why they can't react to things that are happening and being proactive, they have to kind of wait for something to happen. Like we saw with the airport situation, anyone that's gone through Pierce in the past couple of weeks have had an awful experience, but the government, instead of actually doing something to prevent it, they delayed and delayed and played politics around it instead of actually in the, the solution, which is changing some of the rules, which they finally got to the other day. But broadly speaking, they're not making life easy for Canadians. And I think Canadians are starting to get very frustrated by that. Is it that they've got too much on their plate or is it what they've got on their plate nobody is interested in <laughs> and they're not really relating to the issues that seem to be the, the, the voters want on their plate? 
I think there was some interest from the voters in the last election. That's kind of one of the reasons why they're back. I think that they're starting to get boxed in because they've always been a government that has promised a lot of things. Their their problem has been executing and actually getting things done. So I think that's where the government finds themselves. They've made a lot of lofty promises. They haven't made much headway. And a lot of the promises that they've made would help Canadians, but they're not actually addressing them. So they're kind of just in this kind of spin where they can't pull out because they have too much on the go. Uh, enough bread and butter issues, enough what we're talking about at the kitchen table, or too busy trying to impress the world stage? Uh, I would I would definitely lean more into the latter. I think their focus is less on Canadians and those bread and butter and pocketbook issues. They're more looking to kind of help Canada come back on the, on the international stage, and they're kind of forgetting about people in their own backyards. And I think that's something we saw in Ontario with the, with the provincial election is that there was some frustration lingering over Justin Trudeau, and that was put towards Stephen Del Duca and the Ontario Liberals. So can the feds, uh, either provincial or liberal, learn or NDP learn from that Ontario provincial election? Well, you're asking politicians to learn things, and that's always a challenge <laughs> for them. So... I think there are people taking notes, being a little bit worried about how well Doug Ford did in Ontario. And I think some people are worried that that populist message that Ford likes to spew is very connected to what Polar Air likes to spew. So there's a correlation there. So I think some Ontario liberals federally and provincially are taking a look and seeing seeing some of the math add up and getting a little bit worried. So I think over the summertime, we're going to see a lot more liberals. Not necessarily Justin Trudeau, but some of his more capable cabinet ministers uh, do the rounds in Ontario, do the rounds throughout the rest of Canada to kind of come back to this. We are listening. We are ready to serve Canadians kind of viewpoint. Everybody talks about the right when they talk about populism, but isn't one dollar a day transit gun control and tax the rich? Isn't that all populist? Well, we saw how well a dollar transit worked out for the leader that promised that and they were flirting a little bit with it but there's also some people with inside of the liberal base that very much are concerned about gun control especially those in cities uh like toronto i'm sure there are folks in hamilton that are also concerned about it as well so it touches on a lot of spectrum and i think that's something the liberals are going to try to figure out because left-wing populism is different than right-wing populism and the liberals traditionally don't like to dance in that aisle so they're going to have to make some tough decisions coming down the line. Daniel Perry with us, consultant, Summa Strategies. Daniel, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. All right. The Emergency Act uh, inquiry continues. Uh, not a lot being said about it. Uh, is obviously there's uh, other bigger fish to fry, perhaps, uh, in the world and, and lots going on. Uh, but lots of uh, contradictory testimony, whether it's uh, a Minister Mendocino saying that the police did not, or rather asked for the Emergency Act to be called, uh, Minister Blair saying, no, that's not the case, but still defending the use of it. Uh, now news today that, uh, or, or uh, yesterday, that uh, Finance Minister Christia Freeland uh, said that the protesters and, uh, and what ensued and what happened in Ottawa was, uh, and the reason for the Emergency Act was uh, in order to keep goods and services moving and that there was economic fallout of uh, having this uh, uh, taking place. Uh, a, a lot of different things, but um, we're wondering if we're able to really get to the bottom of any of this. Ian Lee is with his associate professor at Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing very well. Thanks, Scott. 
Uh, obviously, lots of political chatter around the Emergencies Act and whether it should have been used or it should not have been used or what have you and the reasons for it being used, whoever asked for it or didn't ask for it. Uh, Christia Freeland talking about economic fallout and that uh, the blockades and, and border restrictions and such uh, was creating havoc uh, economically. Is that a reason? Is that a just cause that fits into this discussion? Uh, I'm not a lawyer or a constitutional lawyer, so I'm not dealing with the, uh, I won't address whether or not um, uh, this uh, fits the criteria uh, laid out in the Act, uh, but so I'll just deal with the larger issue, uh, because I've been teaching the the question of, um, in my classes for literally a third of a century, and that's this whole question of foreign direct investment, and, and, and what makes one a country, one country more attractive than another, because not all countries are not equally attractive, and there's a, a whole genre of research, your listeners can Google it called country risk analysis, and there's consultants and there's academics that study this, and they look at all of the things that make in a, co- a country attractive to invest, and that summarizes as their economic reputation, sometimes called their brand, their economic brand, and you can actually look at capital investment, foreign investment, because it flows into the countries that are seen as better places to invest, and and so what. Ms. Freeland is saying, the finance minister is saying, is just preposterous nonsense. And I'm a nonpartisan. I don't belong to any political party. But saying that the country's brand depends on uh, invoking the Emergencies Act to shut down a protest of some truck drivers on Wellington Street in Ottawa, which is 10 blocks from my house, by the way, uh, who are playing bouncy castles or, I don't know, sitting in hot tubs. It's just the most ridiculous and ludicrous thing I've ever heard of. A brand of a country is developed over years and years. It's based on incredible numbers of variables. The interest rate, the how trained are the workers in the country, uh, what's the capacity, the, what's the productivity of the country, um, what are the laws and regulations, do they enhance or inhibit uh, foreign investment, what are the tip levels of taxation. And so this idea that she's coming up, this preposterous notion that somehow the national economic reputation is based on the invocation of an emergency act, for a protest on one street or two streets on Wellington Street, it's just just it's just absolute bogus nonsense. The um, the, the uh, I I've lived all in Ottawa all my life. I live right next to the downtown, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean right next to the downtown. Like I'm ten blocks from Parliament Hill, and yes, it was very unpleasant. Of course it was. Of course it was. They're blowing their horns in the middle of the night and all that stuff, and there was no insurrection. There was no, you know, I've studied the French Revolution, I've studied the Russian Revolution because I'm fascinated with this. The idea that there was an incipient revolution in Ottawa is just the most nonsensical thing I've ever heard of. It's just nonsensical, you know. It just is. And and, and so I, I thought that this is, uh, they're trying to save, it would appear, they're trying to save the career of the mm-hmm. minister responsible who invoked uh, the Emergencies Act. For those who don't accept my judgment, um, I'll give you an empirical answer. Um, the, in February, um, in uh, 2020, I believe, early 2020, a group of indigenous people shut down the National Railroad for two, two weeks and caused hundreds of millions of dollars of losses. In fact, I think I spoke to you at the time about that. Yeah, yeah and, I remember uh, that. Because of the huge negative impact on the economy. And it did cause a negative impact on the economy. There was not a whisper of invoking the Emergencies Act. Mm. I've never heard in my lifetime in studying public policy as I do, I've never heard of ever of invoking the Emergencies Act because 
of something going on in the economy, you know, a, a mm. flood, a fire, uh, a horrible snowstorm, a tornado, a strike. I mean, I've heard of strikes being legislated back to work. But that's a very different thing from invoking the Emergencies Act. And I've just never heard of economic um, temporary interruptions to the a part of the economy being the basis of uh, uh, the, suggesting that it leads or ought to lead to the invocation of an Emergencies Act. I've never heard that in my life, studying public policy, and I've been studying public policy for over 40 years. Um, do you think anything will be will come of this inquiry? Will we learn anything from this? Um, hard to say. I mean, I, I think I always look at the, sorry for being an academic here, I always look at the, the meta or the big picture as opposed to the specific sentences that will come out of, you know, Chapter 1 and Chapter 2 and Chapter 3. I think what they've done, the opposition and the media, who have done an excellent job covering this uh, in the media, CTV and CBC and the various newspapers and print radio, uh, radio like you, um, what it's done is it's raised what I call from economics the barriers to entry. And what I mean by the barriers to entry, I think in future, a future leader, I don't care who it is, doesn't matter what political party, is not only going to think once, they're going to think, twice, thrice, four times, ten times, twenty times, before they would invoke the Emergencies Measures uh, the Emergencies Act in the future. Just because there's been so much sturm and drang and criticism and attacks and counterattacks and so forth, because they did that. And it really did upset a huge number of people. There are court decisions, uh, appeals, working their way through now, in the courts because of that invocation, because it so violates what many people believe are core values. And uh, so as a consequence, the, the inquiry, it's not the inquiry per se or what they find in any particular sentence or chapter of the final published report, as it is the fact that there was an inquiry, that there is a published report. It got a huge amount of media, and it's going to really force future leaders of whatever government of the day it is to really think long and hard before they'll uh, do it again, because they'll say, you know, it's just not worth the damage, mm. the, the hit to my reputation. All right, Ian, I want to hit you with one more question, totally unrelated. We only got uh, less than a minute left. Uh, in the U.S., they've announced uh, yeah. their interest rate, uh, rates have been hiked up 0.75%, uh, mostly yeah. here 025 percent We're talking about yeah. a three-quarter percent increase here. Will that affect Canada? What does this mean for Canada? Yes. Um, uh, it was long overdue in the states because they've been uh, dropping the ball. Uh, Mr. Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve, said so himself. It's not me saying that. He said that. He said, We've, we screwed up. We messed up. We, we didn't respond quickly enough. Now they're taking it seriously. I, I'll predict, and I don't think it's very bold. I think a lot of others are, too. Bank of Canada, in their next announcement, will raise by 0.75 as well. Mm. And I do not believe that's the last interest rate increase for this year. We are still, believe it or not, below the long-term average rate of central bank rates in Canada and the states. They were driven down so low that basically money was free when it was down to one quarter of one point central bank rate. It, that's what drove a lot of the, the housing bubble. The money was so cheap. Everyone said, hey, I'm going to go yeah. get myself some of this free stuff and go buy a house. Mm. And, and so now that they're making up for the past mistakes of driving down the rates too low, and they've still got more room to go. So I think we'll see the central bank rate up above 3%, the central bank rate, by the end of this year, which will imply mortgage rates above 5
In Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about everything from interest rates to the Emergencies Act. Uh, Ian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We were talking uh, with Mayor Fred Eisenberger earlier on today and talking about the exhibit at City Hall, a photo exhibit of uh, what's been happening in Ukraine. Uh, Just an incredible, uh, incredible exhibit. Uh, A cotton factory involved in it as well, uh, showing us... uh, what life is like enough said there and uh, obviously uh, more events happening throughout the city other things going on by uh, various community organizations and such uh, all trying to do their part and help the people of Ukraine in any way that Hamiltonians can and one of the uh, ways doing that the city of Hamilton has scheduled another this will be the second Ukrainian welcome and information event coming up this month and this is sort of a one-stop location for information services and basically uh, what you need to know, I guess, to get started uh, in in a different land. And just think how difficult uh, that would be, although there's lots of it because this is a city of immigration and our, our, our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents as well, um, all, all know these stories and how Hamiltonians come together to help those that are in need. Uh, to talk about this uh, Ukrainian welcome and information event, Alina Lazar is with us, President, Ukrainian Can- uh, Canada Congress, and is with us now. Alina, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, thank you uh, very well. So tell us what happens at these events. This is the second one, and I should say it's coming up June 21st, uh, 3 till 8 at uh, 450 Houston Street North. Uh, what happens during these events, Elena? Uh, well, actually, what we have is all the services that deliver uh, aid to immigrants are going to be um, in the one location. I believe the uh, Benito Recreational Center has Wi-Fi as well. So all the immigrants are invited to attend and to sign up for such things as uh, their OHIP card, uh, to get their SIN number, uh, to get information about uh, language classes. Um, they can sign up to be, they, of course, before they can take language uh, classes, they need to be um, assessed at what level they are. Uh, we have St. Charles there. We'll have the... Um, Canadian Red Cross there as well, the school boards, and uh, all the service that they need is will be in one place. They can sign up the children for school and uh, get information mm. on various other uh, assistance, um, uh, such as um, resume writing, um, that type of thing. Um, so there will be 15, 16 different types of services there including the Ukrainian social services. Um, And if they have any questions, um, we will also be providing uh, Ukrainian and English speakers to uh, help translate in um, anything they need. What was this first event like? Because obviously, you know, tragic circumstances, but this is opportunity. This It must be a very cool feeling to be helping these people. Uh, actually, it was very exciting. We weren't sure um, because there is no registration process right now mm. for anybody coming into Hamilton. 
So we really don't know who's coming, uh, to where they're going, and how many are here. So uh, the first event, we had 78 new immigrants uh, on May 2nd attend Mm. along with their uh, family members or their hosts, um, which the Canadian uh, public have been very generous with their support. And matter of fact, we had a young man attend. Uh, He was there at 8 o'clock to make sure that uh, he was first in line because he's already secured a job, but he needed information to do all the other paperwork. So he was really quite anxious. He was first in line, and he registered with all the services. And uh, on top of that, he approached the uh, Ukrainian Social Services, and he uh, mentioned the fact that he loved to bike and was looking to find a bicycle so that he could ride back and forth to work, which they were very happy to assist him with. So um, wow. we had a terrific turnout. We had lots of people there to offer assistance and uh, translation services. So we were really pleased by the wonderful turnout. And um, those uh, immigrants who already secured jobs their hosts and families came uh, to get information in order to point them in the right direction. So it was really successful, and we were very happy with the turnout. Which is why there's a second one, June 21st, 3 till 8 at Benito Community Center, 450 Houston Street North. Uh, boy, what a positive thing to come out of this horrific story and, and what these people have been through over the last uh, several months and years. Uh, Congratulations to you, Alina. Uh, Incredible stories. Uh, Alina Lazar with us, President, Ukrainian Canada Congress. Going to have to let you go. We're plumb out of time, Alina. But good luck with this, and we'll chat again. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's a wrap for the show. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills and Dave and Diana in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Hey, Scott, I'm also Scott. 12,000 tickets sold for the Bulldogs. I'm ready to go. Is there room for me? I'm the Bulldogs' biggest fan. I know that we're not going to drop the ball like some other Hamilton teams. Go dogs! Woo! <laughs> Man! Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.